normally we uh, do our tithes and offerings, but to uh, obey the governor's COVID-19 policy, uh, we have the box at the uh, back of the church you can put your tithes in. And uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, you've so blessed us in so many ways. Uh, we want to return this portion of these uh, blessings to you that you can carry out your work. We can carry out your work uh, throughout the world. Amen. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise to all creatures here below. Praise Him above the heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, Beginning. 
But they grappled with that, you know, because it seems like if we've got matter now, perhaps matter's always been, right? Then it doesn't explain how we got here from there. We go to other great questions like, you know, the existence of God, but really the question is the existence of us. Not really any doubt about the existence of God, how we got here is still in play. And so scripture doesn't really inform us about things that we could know through other means. It's really focused on telling us the things that we need to know that we can't find out through other ways. Then we get to this big one, free will and predestination. Oh no, it's terrible. At the same time, it's a fundamental question of philosophy. You've got these people that are determinists that say everything's determined by the things that came before it, right? It's just like dominoes falling down so that all of history is just click, 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 click. And that's not Christian. You have these other people that say, really, nothing's determined. It's all chance, and things are just happening by accident. Everything's accidental. Even God doesn't know what's going to happen, because how could he? And that's not us either, right? So it's an interesting question. I want to focus on this. We must maintain the mystery, shouldn't we? I mean, just because God tells you something does not actually mean you get it. And it was easy, Right? There are all kinds of philosophical mysteries about existence and, and the human being and even salvation in which God sometimes tells us exactly the truth of it. But that doesn't mean that we understand it. That just means it's been revealed. Let me give you the other great conundrum that the church always goes through. Doctrine of the Trinity and the hypostatic union. There's a couple of good, you know, $5 words there you can throw around to your friends and, and, and you know, impress them with your loquacious intelligence. <laughs> Hypostatic union means that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man at the same time, and yet one person. Now, we can understand that it's true, and we can see that there's no logical conflict in Scripture. But to say that we really get it is maybe pushing a little too far, right? When God describes himself as not being one person and one being as we are, but that he's one being, one God, that exists eternally as three persons, obviously that's a little tough. And sometimes people even bring up, well, it's a logical contradiction. No, it would be a logical contradiction to say that there's one God that's really three gods. Or that he's one person and really three persons. To say that there is one God that exists as three persons just means he's different from us. To say that we understand how that all works, no, we don't. But to say that it's true, well, it's been revealed to us in such a way is that we can apprehend with the mind its truth, even if we don't understand it in an infinitesimal level, right? So that the Son is God. And the Father is God, and the Spirit are God. And they even have interactions with each other, each having all of the attributes of the deity, and yet being different distinguishable persons. Let me tell you something really obvious that maybe we never thought of. God the Father did not die on the cross outside of Calvary. The Holy Spirit didn't either. The Son came and was manifested in human flesh and died for us. The Holy Spirit comes in and dwells us, not the Father exactly. The Father created all things, and he created them through the Son by the administrations of the Spirit, but they all took on different roles according to their great covenant of creation that they had before the world began, so that they would create all things by them and for them for the manifestation of their own glory. But there are other mysteries here. There are. Let's take a look at Ephesians chapter 1. Now, the reason that we look at Ephesians is just so we can see that the language that we're using here is not the language of theology, and it's not the language of philosophy, and we're not trying to impose something upon the scriptures, but we will see here that the scriptures are imposing something upon us. Here's the thing. You guys will all remember Martin Luther when 
we're coming up on the Reformation month here, we'll focus on the doctrines of the Reformation because really that was the reclaiming of the gospel after a few hundred years of darkness and error, right? And Martin Luther was famous for, you know, saying, you know, terrible things about reason. He said that reason was terrible. You should stay away from it. And yet he was a rigorously logical person that was constantly telling you to be reasonable. Now, the reason that he could do both is all he meant is unbounded reason without scripture as a guide, without scripture as a narrative to bind reason and logic to truth. Reason is just autonomy. And the devil, even in the beginning, said, did God really say? Trying to get Adam for just a second to look away from the revelation of God and look to himself for his own reasoning, logic, and understanding. You know, when we grapple with the sciences, really there will never be anything that is proven and true by the sciences that won't be conversant or reconcilable with Scripture. But there have been many times in history where the sciences have taken to us to a place where almost all of human society believed something the sciences were saying that turned out to be manifestly false, right? So it's easy to take the sciences and move away from Scripture into our own reasoning and find out that the sun is not really the center of the universe. Something the Bible never said, but was taught in every university in the world at one time, right? So we come to here, and from verse 3 it says this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him. Now, this entire chapter, we're basically just going to read it without a lot of commentary so that you can dwell in it and it can wash over you. But what I want you to focus on is the sheer, utter, overwhelming number of pronouns poured into this chapter, right? It's not I, me, we. It's him, he, he, and uh, his. Yeah. Notice, this focus of this chapter is it's all about him. It's not really about you. You're the recipient you're not the cause. He's giving, you are receiving. If you take the analogy of law, we call it a third-party beneficiary agreement, where there was a relationship between the father and the son that brought about a great blessing for a third party that has no legal rights in the transaction. They even have no duties. Sometimes when people want to leave something to an heir or to a grandchild or a great-grandchild, they set up this relationship where they get the benefit, right? But they can't do anything about it. As a matter of fact, to a certain age, they can't even touch the money because we know what they do with it, right? Let's just hold it in trust until they're 30 or 40 and know how to make good decisions, right? <laughs> Otherwise, it'll just be a cool car and, you know, trips to Florida or whatever. <laughs> so here he says, Who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Read along if you have a Bible because it's important. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. How much influence do you think you had on God's decision-making before the foundation of the world was laid? I would venture not a whole lot, but that's just me. How much influence did you have on your parents before you were born, for example? Not a lot involved with you in the transaction. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the richness of his grace, which he lavished on us, 
in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. That's a lot of pronouns, right? That's a lot of his, he, him. Talking about that he did it and he willed it and according to his purpose and for his glory and that all of these things are manifested in a plan that was in existence before the world was even created. Now, is there a philosophical conundrum there? Is there a paradoxical thing going on there in which we obviously have free will and make decisions and yet God also has a free will and he's got a few decisions to make of his own, right? And how do these two things line up? You know, go to the philosophers for that kind of thing. I can't really be bothered with it, but I've got scripture here and I've got to contend with it. And it's powerful, right? Some of the things he's saying here are almost overwhelmingly powerful in their scope because he says he, him, his even going all the way to salvation. Now, we have all of these arguments. Martin Luther wrote this very, very famous book called The Bondage of the Will, in which he denies that there is, even is such a thing as free will, right? And a lot of people call Luther kind of like a minor Calvinist, which is kind of, you know, discriminatory. Because, of course, he was the generation before Calvin. And Calvin argues for free will, so that's more confusing, right? And our confession actually argues for free will and against free will, which is even more confusing. But here's what's really being said. It all depends on how you define it, right? Are you really absolutely free in your judgments and decisions? You were born at this time in history, not another. If you wanted to play for the Lakers, you just might not be tall, right? There are all kinds of things that have to do with who you are and what you are and what God made you and what he formed you to be which don't really leave everything up to your immediate discretion. And so the entire boundaries of human existence are around you, binding you into a certain time, place, and manner of existence. That you were born into a Christian family instead of not being born into one has a lot to do with your salvation, because God tends to save in familial lines. You might give that up to religious influence, but Scripture gives it up to God and the manifestation of His Holy Spirit. As we move on from there, we get to the place of what is it for a will to be free? Do dogs have free will? I will ask you to perform this test at home, those of you that have dogs. Offer them a bowl of canned pineapple and a fresh juicy steak. <laughs> and see which one they go to. Then do it again. Then do it again until it starts to get expensive, right? How many times do they go after the steak instead of the pineapple? It's actually 100% of the time. You can spend the rest of your life offering the, the dog pineapple and steak, and he always be, eats the steak. Not because he doesn't have free will, but because he does. And according to his nature, as he was made, he goes after what a dog naturally hungers for. And so when we talk about the freedom of the will, we're often talking about it within the scope or boundary of your nature. Now here's where a lot of this argument gets down to, right? If your nature is inclined fully toward God, 
And you are free to love God. And you are sinless in your nature. So that your gravity is always compelled to fall toward God. Then according to your freedom, you will always go to God. But, if your will is fallen, and if you are in sin, and if the gravity of your nature is always toward yourself and your own well-being, and toward your own happiness, and your own glory, and your own pleasure, then you don't have anything in you that will compel you toward the gorgeous stake of God, so to speak. If we're free and we're absolutely free, so be it. But if we're fallen, how free are we to choose the good over the evil? Now, as I told you, all of this has been talked about in the secular philosophers. They talk about all of these things. And so that comes into our discussions and our sentiment about the discussion, right? Is the man free to choose the good? Does he love the good from within himself? Or does he need something to happen to him so deep and invasive within the very soul of the human being as to bring them to the place where they are able and inclined to choose the good? Now, either way, the will is free. But in one, it's free to do only evil all the time. It's just a matter of which evils can we do today? In the other, the person must be spiritually resurrected from a place of spiritual death so that they might be inclined toward spiritual life. Let's take a look at Romans chapter 9. Now in Romans chapter 9, uh, we're going to go ahead and read through just for the sake of your hearing. But we'll be focused on the verses coming down by about verse 14. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. This is the Apostle Paul explaining this problem with so many of the Jews that follow the law not coming to Christ. And so there's something there that needs to be explained because Romans is a very Jewish book. And he's explaining things that require a great depth and background of Old Testament understanding. My conscience bears with me the Holy Spirit that I have great and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Now, what he means by that is exactly what you think, people that he's related to physically. Now, many of you have probably gone through the same type of suffering and anguish in suffering for the salvation of someone that you know and love that's related to you, and you want them to be saved so badly that you would wish yourself accursed for the sake of their salvation. So he's saying exactly what you think he's saying. They are the Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, talking about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Noah, and Adam. And from their race, according to the flesh is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it's not as though the word of God has failed. So he starts to explain why some of them come to Christ and some of them don't. The first thing he wants us to know is because it's not the word of God failed, as if that were an option. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Still talking about the flesh, not all of those that are the physical descendants of Israel, which is another name for Jacob, after whom was named the entire nation of Israel, not all of them are true Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. 
but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Now you remember, Abraham had two sons, right? Isaac and Ishmael. One was the son of the promise that God had promised him. The other was the son of his flesh. And so God uses this back, this uh, Old Testament understanding of the text to explain what's happening here. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. In other words, this is what was promised to Abraham in chapter 17 of uh, Genesis. About this time next year I will return and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah, the wife of Isaac, had conceived children by one man our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose and election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Now let's unpack that for a minute, because what he's saying is exactly what you're reading him saying. The only reason that he can possibly put something in there that says before either one of them were done good or had done anything good or bad is to disabuse us of the idea that it was because God knew they were going to do something good or bad. In other words, the idea that God really knows what somebody would do under possible conditions, and so his grace and his miraculous work in them is contingent upon whether or not they're going to do good or going to do bad, he says exactly because it's not that. As a matter of fact, they were what? They were twins. So even if you think to yourself, well, it's because they were Israelites, he says they were twins, and one was called by God, and the other was rejected. Let's read it again. And not only so, but when Rebekah had conceived children... By one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had not done anything, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, so it's not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Before they were born, before either one had done anything good or bad. Now, everybody knows that every once in a while somebody will try to run around this. And they'll say, well, but he did know when they would be born and that they would do things good or bad. And we know from the text that, yeah, but, you know, Jacob did bad. They both did bad. So it's really not upon them being good or bad. The only reason he puts this in the text is so that we will not think that it's because he looked down the corridors of time and saw that one would be good and one would be bad. That's exactly what he's not saying. Do you see the text fighting against the idea that the mind wants to compel? What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Now the only reason he can ask that rhetorical question is if the natural question that would come to mind is, well then there's injustice on God's part. Because he chose one and rejected the other. Even though they hadn't been born and hadn't done anything good or bad. Do you see how the question there is contingent upon a certain reading of the text? The only reason it makes sense for him to ask a rhetorical question is that he thinks we will ask that question. Now, if God just looked down the corridors of time and saw that one would do good and one would be, do bad, we wouldn't have a question. We know it's because of them. It's because one was good and one was bad, right? But he says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So it does not depend on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Now, one of the reasons this is so powerful for us is it starts to steal something from us. 
something very important to that darkness of the heart of man that compels him to choose one thing instead of the other 100% of the time. What it starts to steal from you is your autonomy. What it starts to steal from you is your choice. What it starts to steal from you is that if you do this, God has to do that so that you have him all wrapped up. You have him exactly where you want him, and now he's compelled to do as you command. And yet he says here, it does not depend on human will. As we saw in Ephesians, the answer of the Apostle Paul there is it does depend on a will, just not yours. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, so he's got two people that he talks to about this. He calls you back to Moses and he says he told Moses this. And then he calls us back to Pharaoh, not exactly a patriarch. And he says, for this purpose I have raised you up, speaking to Pharaoh, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Does anybody remember how God manifested his glory and made his name great in all the earth through Pharaoh? Right. By destroying it. Plagues. Pharaoh was the most powerful man in the world with the greatest armies. And God showed that it was just dust on the scales of history. His power is so great. And so he raised up Moses saying, I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. And I'm having compassion on Moses. And then he raised up Pharaoh. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. He hardens. Look at the next verse, in case you think maybe I'm misreading this. Look at the rhetorical question. He does the same thing again. He says, you will say to me then, because he knows what you're thinking. Why does he still find fault? Because who can resist his will? Who can resist the will of God? You? You know, you're just the flower of the field, the grass that jumps up for a moment in the sunshine, and the next day you dry out and you're blown away by the wind. The idea that you can contend with the will of the Almighty is just ridiculous. It's laughable. And so he says there, you, you will say to me, why does he still find fault? Because no one can resist his will. But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Now his answer to this is not always immediately compelling. There's a great uh, set of theories that go through jurisprudence and ethics, and one of them is, are things good uh, because God likes them, or does God like them because they're good? Let me ask you again. Are things good because God likes them, or does God like them because they're good? Because if he likes things because they're good, that means there's a principle of goodness above him, and he just appreciates it because he's a, he loves fine art. I don't know. The other is that good and evil themselves are determined by God, so that when we say it's not good to murder your brother in cold blood, it's because it's an expression of God's own will and determination within himself that such a thing be evil instead of good. Right? And so he goes to God's power to justify the expression of his power, even in salvation. He doesn't go to some principle behind God for which we judge what he does as right or wrong. Now what this means is what God does is right because he does it. Now I know that's not immediately satisfactory, but think about the gravity of who we're talking about. We're not talking about me. There's nothing that's right just simply because I do it. Although I use that argument on my kids all the time. <laughs> Why, Dad? Because I said so, right? It doesn't really work. But when God does it, does it work? He made all of us. He made the universe. It's all his. What he does with it is in his hands. It's in his power to do so. 
Even justice and injustice are just the collocation of the expression of his in, un, uninvestigatable will. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Shall what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make, wrath and make known his power, endured with much patience the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for the vessels of his mercy? which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has, same word, called. Even us whom he has called. Not from the Jews only, but from the Gentiles. And as indeed he says to Hosea, those who are not like her people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said, you are not my people, they will be called the sons of the living God. So here's the way the Apostle Paul explains all of this. He does not get rid of the mystery for us. He doesn't get rid of the problem or the distinction between the fact that we obviously do have free will and make independent decisions with the fact that ultimately when it comes to our salvation, that is simply not one of them. He doesn't deal with all of the different mysteries having to do with the philosophy of human decision-making and determination. He says in one way, everything's determined, and in another way, nothing's determined. Everything's determined because there are previous causes and effects, but that determining figure is a free God that can decide anything he wants at any time. And so really nothing's determined, right? We don't get an easy out through philosophy, but we do get an answer through Scripture. And what the answer is through Scripture is that when it comes to a person coming to know God through saving faith, and a person continuing down that road to their own destruction of disbelief, that's not left up to the mere interpretive will and the rational understanding of the human being. That's an act of the Holy Spirit upon the soul, in which he brings us to spiritual life from spiritual death and grants us this gift called faith. And so in the context of the church, and talking about calling and called and chosen and all of these things, God's doing a choosing. Why does he do it? How does he do it? We don't know. What's he doing in here that I have faith before I didn't believe? We don't know. We talk about the Holy Spirit as if we have some kind of a, a minuscule apprehension of what's going on, but what we know is before, I was blind, and now I see. Before, we were dead, and now we're alive. Before, we were deaf, and now we're here. So in all of these things, in talking about the church, we want to be very careful to give all glory to God and reserve none for ourselves. Because this is the thing that changes us in our sanctification, in our walk in life. As long as we're holding one finger on our own goodness or ability, we don't walk fully into the sanctification of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Lord God, our Father, as you call us to be holy, and as you call us to be good, we have to always maintain, Lord God, that there's nothing good in us but everything good in you. That every good and perfect gift were given from above in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So that even all of the goods that we have, Lord God, are your goods. We praise you and thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. For this last song, we'll be singing a portion again of the benediction. My benediction.